the session are the personal opinions of the participants and do not reflect the official policy or position of their respective employers. This discussion is a volunteer-led effort to contribute to the profession and pay forward the many kindnesses and instances of support and guidance that the participants have received in the course of their career. So we are all paying it forward. Thank you, everybody. David, John, and Susan on this talk about how to collect incident data, how to use it, how to uh, use various for performing certain actions that you want so that you can share this data anonymously with other people and join the various community. John, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello. Oh, sure, absolutely. So good evening, folks, or good morning or good afternoon. John Grimm here. With uh, I'm with Verizon, and I'm a big fan of Verus and looking forward to a great session today to discuss how we can use Verus to share information uh, in light of some of the more significant events that you can see uh, within the title here that have impacted folks around the world. So looking forward to a great discussion with my colleagues. Thank you, Susan. Uh, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Suzanne Whittup, and um, I am one of the co-authors of the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, or DBIR for short. And uh, Verus, of course, is what underpins the DBIR and is how we uh, codify all of the data. And David is joining us from Denmark. Uh, thank you, David, for joining us at this late hour. And can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, um, David Tao Clayton. Um, yeah, I'm uh, connecting in from Denmark, where it's uh, eleven o'clock or two minutes past eleven right now. Um, but um, I'm uh, working at a company called um, called Computech, um, and uh, I have had quite a lot of experiences with um, with Verus. Um, I recently gave a, um, a SANS talk. Um, what was it? I think in February this year, um, about how to how we've used Verus in the past and um, how Verus can be used to, uh, yeah, you know, really explode your um, your incident reporting as an organization. So hopefully we can uh, we can have some good talk about this tonight. Sure. And, John, and do you want to share a screen? I do, absolutely. And so, David, we're really excited. Uh, I did see your SANS uh, discussion earlier this year uh, covering Verus, and I know you've done uh, at least one podcast on how to roll your own DVIR. So, um, very exciting to hear your experiences uh, in those sessions as well as to hear what you have to say tonight. So, I will go ahead and share my screen. Okay. Are we okay? Mm -hmm. We can see it. Okay. So, Milofer, uh, did you want to kick things off? Yes. Uh, so okay, thank you. So, let me go ahead and kick things off here to kind of give folks an idea of what Verus is, and we'll walk through different aspects of Verus in today's discussion with insights from David, from Suzanne, and, and even you, Nilafer, and, and myself too, in terms of how we've used Verus and how it can be effective for various different uh, 
usages uh, to include uh, understanding the data breach investigations report in terms of its findings. So real quick, uh, Suzanne, I, actually, do you mind covering this slide right here in terms of the Veris framework? Sure, so if you aren't familiar with Veris, it stands for the Vocabulary for Event Recording and Incident Sharing, and it's really what uh, makes the DBIR possible. It's very good at taking a narrative like a case report and putting it into the format of who is perpetrating these breaches, uh, what kinds of tactics they like to use when they attack, uh, what sort of infrastructure they like to attack uh, and, and how it is affected by their actions, the CII triad, uh, the confidentiality and integrity and availability. Okay, and if folks are, are in, interested in following along, there's a link down there, veriscommunity.net, where there's all kinds of great information in terms of Veris. We'll also provide at the end of the session uh, a link to GitHub in terms of additional resources for Veris. So Veris in action. Uh, Suzanne, do you mind covering this one as well? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so, you know, we at the DBR, we, we try to make it really easy for our partners to give us data. And so we'll take it in whatever format they actually give it to us in. But once we get it, we have to sort of put it into an apples to apples coherent data set. And we use Veris for that. Um, now, we're frequently asked if we can share the data that underpins the DBIR, and of course, that's shared with us under NDA. And so, in 2014, we realized, you know, this, or 2013, I think, we realized that there's, there's a need for this kind of raw, freely downloadable data set for security research, and we started the Veris Database Pro Community Database Project, which is VCDB. And what we do is we collect publicly disclosed data breach uh, reports news reports, um, the things that the companies provide, you know, reports to the government, all that sort of thing, code it up in various format and release it to the public for use. Right now, there's well over 8,000 records in that data set. It's been used for a number of research projects already, and it's really useful as a complementary data set to the DBIR. So, David, you uh, had uh, covered... Uh you had done an assessment or, or looked at various different models in terms of usage for threat intelligence. Um, in terms of VCDB and Veris in general, uh, do you mind sharing some of your experiences in, in terms of researching uh, for solutions for uh, codifying incidents, for example? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, we, I stumbled upon uh, Veris as an accident, actually. Um, I was a uh, we had the problem at our company of um, uh, my manager, he got promoted to being a vice president and then he realized that uh, he left a gap uh, in his position. So I stepped in to be, uh, you know, take over his uh, position. And then the classic thing when he became a VP was uh, he turned around to me and said, I need better reporting. I was okay, how, how do you want me to do that? And he was like, I just, just do it. Just, just, just give me better reporting. Um, <laughs> so I spent, done, right? <laughs> vice president stuff, right? Um, and um, I, I spent some time uh, doing research into, um, you know, we've got all these incidents um, and um, the tool that we were using, you know, the, the way that we were recording the incidents was we, we just didn't really have a very good um very good format right we were doing like um per incident based reporting we would have a, a an incident of a certain size and then we would write a pdf report and then that would be it um and we wouldn't really be sure of the language we were using in the report and and, and so then we ended up with like you know we could have 10 pdfs of different reports uh, that essentially explain the same thing but but weren't. we didn't really have a good idea of how to link them together 
so I started doing quite a lot of research into it and um, there are a few people who have come into this problem before and then have produced their own format to, to doing it. So, um, you know, some of the guys who are incident response teams in, in Europe, places like Circle, um, they, they have a way of, um, of, of their uh, constituents being able to report incidents to them. So they can, you know, you can click on a link and say report incident, and then it takes you through to uh, you know, a, a site where you can just type in this, this data and then I, I, I'm good friends with the guys at Circle. Um, they're the guys who also produce MISP as well. Um, and I asked them, you know, how are you then you know, recording the data afterwards so you can then present it afterwards? And, and they showed me their, their model. Um, and I was like, but this is, you know, this only has a few kind of, a few fields. Like in my mind, what I'm looking for is a way of kind of, you know, producing metrics from almost every single piece of the incident. Like every single thing could be a metric. Um, and, and the languages I looked at uh, at the time were, you know, the one from uh, Circle and then I think First has one as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were kind of like purpose built for that purpose that they needed them at the time. Um, but they hadn't really thought about, you know, how is this going to improve an organization's um, uh, security posture? Or how is it going to, you know, how are you going to produce heat maps of, of if you make a change here and, and seeing how it affects incidents later? How can you do all of that stuff where you literally just in this archaic form where you, you know, report a specific incident type? And that was really all you had to move around in. I think there were about four metrics that I could kind of dig out of a few of the different um, reporting languages. Mm -hmm. And I actually got really, really tired. Um, and I went to a um, to to a first incident response summit uh, in Oslo, um, and I bumped into uh, Andres, uh, who's one of the the lead uh, developers at uh, at Circle, who works on the MIST project stuff. And um, had a chat with him, and he was like, "Why don't you go and look in the um, in the MISP uh, taxonomies? Because MISP have tried to collect like basically every single incident classification taxonomy that there is out there uh, into MISP. So you can actually go and you can play around with all of them. Mm -hmm. And this, this, this still the same prevailing thing that I found each time was that they were kind of you know purpose built like I, I, again kind of built by incident responders for incident responders um, and that meant that they'd use their own language and they hadn't really thought about how this might then land on a, on a vice president's desk or on a CEO's desk or, you know, all of that type of thing. Um, and I was close to kind of basically saying, okay, I'm going to have to roll my own, right? I'm going to have to create my own thing out of this. Um, and then by chance, uh, you guys published the, um, uh, the next iteration of the DBIR. And then I got that and I was sat there and I was like, okay, hang on. How have they done this? Right? Like they have made a metric out of, everything mm -hmm. so how can, how, how can i do that and then i then that's when i stumbled across um the uh, the various community page and actually uh, i think the certificate had expired on one of the, oh, yeah. the forms and i was like is this for real like is this am i on a fake site here or something like what is this like is this part <laughs> of Verizon? like would Verizon have a site that did this and then like after i started digging and talking with a few of the guys behind the scenes you know uh, alex and 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 gade as well and then i realized that you know it was for real and this was a, a language that we could use and then yeah sorry i've talked a lot on that question but no. yeah that was kind of that was where the research went and then i was like i've cracked it i found exactly what i need here um and then the, the story goes on but I'll, we, can, we can tell that throughout the talk of as i'll spend the next uh, 45 minutes telling the full story so no, absolutely. So that was the research, basically.
So, David, uh, do you use like uh, incident data as a for your work related stuff? Like, what? Wh how do you use it? Why do you need this information? Yeah. So, 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 at my previous company, um, I, I I moved like two months or so ago. Um, what we used it for was um, for all sorts of different types of reporting. Um, we used it at, at the first time to actually get a grip of what we as an incident response team were seeing in terms of you know how many incidents are we seeing across our different customer base and then over time um we adapted more and more of the various language into what we were doing and we started to use it for um you know vp reporting um and um uh yeah taking it to the CISA and saying that you know we're seeing a rise in in social engineering over here um, against these specific users. And that was the other cool thing, right? Was that um, because we had uh, made so many metrics of basically every single parameter, we could kind of say, okay, well, I wanna know what's going on in social engineering in uh, this area of the company. And then when you can do that, then you can really, really kind of um, take it to the next level because then you can really start to look at, well, if I tweak something here in terms of doing more targeted social, uh, you know, uh, social social engineering training, can that have an effect? And then you can actually watch it over time, especially if you're recording. As we went a bit crazy and we tried tried to kind of adopt not just the full various language, but then also add our own fields in as well. Um, and uh, it looked a bit crazy at the start, but actually over time. <laughs> We kind of got more used to using it and it became a really really powerful tool and now in my uh, my new job as a consultant um i have this dream that um i'm gonna help uh, organizations to actually uh, do this so uh, basically every i want every organization to be able to pr produce their own uh, dbir which shouldn't be so difficult but um yeah, let's see how we got on with that one. It, 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 it's, it's quite a journey as well. I think that was, the, that was the reason why I wanted to give the, the SANS talk was because it, it is a journey, right? You can't just, um, you can't walk into an organization and say, you're using various, here's a spreadsheet, off you go. Um, you need to kind of, you know, a lot of the incident responders are, are used to being an incident responder for incident response sake and not for the organization's sake, right? If you walk into most places where they've got their own incident response team, they're really, really eager to, to get right down into the, you know, uh, reversing of malware or doing all of those like really super technical stuff. They're not so bothered about how that is then communicated back into the business. Um, and so it, it is, it is a journey that you need to then kind of massage those guys. And then once you've got those guys to understand the value, then, then things can start to change. Um, so yeah, did I, did I answer the question or did I talk way too much as always? <laughs> <laughs> no, you did answer. And, uh, Susan, um, uh, so Susan is the founder of the digital forensic association. And when you were, when you were, um, like when you initially founded this organization, did you know about Veris or did you, were you aware? No, not at all. This is, um, this is before I joined Verizon and uh, before I, I was even really looking at data breaches. Actually, my, my first foray into looking at data breaches was when I was going for a PhD and it was one of the projects was you had to do some sort of research in security. It was before the first DBIR had come out. And um, I started looking at public disclo publicly disclosed data breaches and doing some research in that area. 
and uh, that was what started me off there. And at the time, I was doing forensics as well. <laughs> That's why I started the, D, the DFA. Okay. John, you want to continue? Sure. I, just my experience. Um, I've been with the team for 11 years for Verizon and uh, almost as long as the DBIR. But, you know, the Veris came out, I think, Suzanne, was it 2013, 2014? Is that when it came out? Mm, it was sooner than that. Okay. And I started realizing as I was presenting the DBIR findings that folks were asking more and more questions about Veris and the underlying framework that we use. And so a few years ago, I started switching up the presentations and talking more from the standpoint of Veris and in particular, the A4 threat model, which we're going to get into here real shortly. Uh, so my experience with it was with Veris was from the standpoint of uh, relaying the findings in DBIR in a more structured manner from the standpoint of Veris. And of course, uh, with our delivery, you know, we, we often do um, highlight findings with, with Veris in mind or at least uh, the incident patterns, for example, or the A4 threat model in terms of some of our reporting so that folks have a, a reference point and can compare and contrast uh, to the DBIR and its findings. So that's my experience there. And let me, uh, let me go ahead and click on to the next slide here. We do have something we wanted to show and share before we start talking about the A4 threat model. Um, Suzanne, did you wanna kinda walk us through this, sure. this uh, tool that people can use? So this is what we call the Veris web app. And what we have is basically a web form where you can go through and answer all of the fields. And when you finish, you export it and it spits out the JSON file for you. It, you know, it, it only exports it to your own desktop. It does not share it with anybody. And so if you wanna share it, you actually have to send them that file. And so everything stays local. And it's really useful if you're coding a case and you don't wanna, you know, you don't, you don't know how to get started with JSON. You don't want to edit JSON. You just want to, you know, fill out a form. And this is basically what it lets you do. And uh, I believe at the end, we also have a slide that has where you can get this yeah. and, uh, and make it useful for you. So yeah, so, hopefully that, that's something that people will use as sort of an entryway into recording their own data. So essentially there's, there's, there's two options and, and correct me if I'm wrong. There's using this, this, this web app here to code data. Uh, we use it for the various community database to code publicly disclosed breaches, but organizations can also leverage this internally for their uh, their purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is one way. And, and I think there's another way that folks sometimes use Veris in, in terms of maybe a spreadsheet to track that way. Is that, are those the primary two reasons or two ways that you see folks using or inputting data or collecting yeah, data? Okay. Typically, that's it's one of those two. Do you, do you mind just kind of touching on this screenshot here uh, for folks to just kind of roll through from the top down to the bottom and then we'll, we'll get more into the four A's there. Sure, so basically uh, some of this is auto-generated by the app, the master ID and the incident ID are both um, internal fields that are generated by the app. And then, you know, it's a drop-down security incident. It's, you know, is this confirmed as a security incident or is it suspected or something like that? And then, you know, the reference uh, will depend uh, if you if you have case titles or something like that, you can put that in there. Then you have a summary, you know, that, that if it's something that, that they're sending to us, we ask them to put a good summary in there so that we could conceivably, you know, code the whole case based on the summary. There's enough information in there. Um, our confidence intervals, of course, is whether we have high confidence in what it was, you know, and that's going to depend largely on what the source was. And then these other fields, timeline and victim, if you click on them, they actually expand quite a bit and you get to put all the detail in there and then you can collapse it and go on and down the way. And uh, 
it, it takes out the four A's, it takes out all the uh, other little uh, things that we collect in Veris, and it makes it sort of an easier to present way of doing it. Okay, and one other thing too, I think we didn't really talk too much about this, but there is a difference between incidents and breaches. Can you just kind of touch on that at a high level? Sure. So the difference in the DBIR in particular uh, between an incident and a breach is for something to be considered a confirmed data breach, it has to be a confirmed violation of the confidentiality aspect of the data. And so you can probably think of, you know, error, cases where you can't make that confirmation. For instance, the lost laptop, you know, you don't have control over the asset anymore. You can't verify that the data was actually accessed. You know it's at risk because it's not encrypted or would not be considered um, at risk in our data set. Uh, and so that, that would be considered a security incident and not a confirmed data breach. And so that's one of those things that, you know, anything except the confirmed confidentiality is going to be a security incident. Okay, thanks. It's uh, good to know because I, I always focus on the breaches, but, but of course the, the incidents are the greater data set. Um, and those could be denial of service attacks that weren't a breach or maybe a breach that wasn't fully fulfilled. Um, so lots of good insight there in terms of uh, the differences. So thank you. Yeah, and if you look at like our, our report this year, we went through almost 80,000 security incidents and we only boiled that down to uh, just over 5,200 confirmed data breaches. So that's quite a difference in numbers. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So A4 threat model, Varus, A4 threat model is the full title there. Um, of course, we went over what Varus stands for and also the A4 threat model, but this is just a real quick refresher as we get into all four of these A's for today's discussion. And then we'll start talking about some of the uh, significant incidents or media reported incidents that have occurred recently and show how you can use Veris to share that information and actually visualize it as well. One other thing too, and this is on veriscommunity.net, if you are collecting the data for Veris, you can also use the Veris A4 grid. And Suzanne, let me go ahead and uh, have you comment on how this can be used in terms of tracking data, visualizing data, and seeing where the hotspots are in terms of what's happening. Now, usually when we put something like this up, we put it up with as a heat map so that you can sort of see where the hotspots are. And that tends to be how people use this is to just see where their, their own hotspots are because you want to know where you've got a concentration of incidents and breaches. And this is uh, on, on the left-hand side would be, uh, you can see the assets and the attributes. And then on the bottom, you can see the actors and the actions. Uh, so those two go hand in hand uh, in terms of the A4 threat model. David, is this anything that you've uh, actually used in practice? Is this something that, that you can comment on? Uh, kind of, sort of, I guess. Um, okay. I actually didn't know that this existed. This is actually really awesome. Okay. Um, <laughs> and if I had have known this existed, then this would have been something that we used, I think, because um, we kind of um, created something like this of our own, um, where we, um, yeah, so so maybe we have to go back a, a tiny bit first to, to the mm -hmm. previous bit where we were talking about how how to collect data uh, how, as an organization yourself. Um, Suzanne, you talked about the two the two usual methods of the the the, the JSON way, or uh, you know you know using the web app or uh, using a spreadsheet, and that's what we started out with. Actually, um, we 
well, originally we started out of a whiteboard where we talked first about trying to find the, the, the various fields that we felt were the most valuable for us and for our organization. Um, and so we spent a lot of time as a team whiteboarding incidents uh, in various uh, and choosing, you know, sub sub hmm. uh, fields of various that we thought, okay, these are the most important to start out with. And then we can add, you know, the others later. Hmm. And then we boiled it down to a spreadsheet um with different tabs and the spreadsheet you know for the different uh things so uh actions had a um a tab and then over time we reset we we kind of you know uh iterated that as well where then we joined actions onto things like onto assets so we could actually see you know when an action had occurred on an asset um and we also added other, other stuff into it um and that gave us kind of over time the ability to then be able to do things like this A4 thing where we could actually then see, okay, um, if we look at social engineering, where are we seeing the, the, biggest, um, the biggest issues? Um, this is really a nice way of doing it. And I think you, you do use this, um, this grid in the DBIR, right? I think in quite a lot of things. So I've actually um, yeah. uh, started using the DBIR in some of my... Um, presentations that I go and give out uh, either at universities or, or also when I go to um, uh, client meetings um, where I look at, you know, specifically start out, the, the, the DBR is like the perfect place to start if you're going to go to a um, talk of a client in a sector that you're not so familiar with, the DBR is the perfect place to go, choose the, you know, the industry they're in and then start from there. Where, where should I then be focusing? Okay, if there's a, you know, a higher proportion of um, uh, you know, if, if there's a if the gap between incidents and breaches is smaller, then you know that there's a there's probably somewhere where there's needing more investment in this area because um, most incidents are being turned into breaches. Um, and yeah. so it's a it's a really really valuable um, a really valuable tool for that. And and this these heat maps are are super awesome for that as well. Absolutely. And, and just a comment here: those numbers that folks see, it may be hard to see. There are 315 different combinations of A4 that fit within this grid. Uh, essentially, there's three actors, seven actions, seven assets, and three attributes in various different combinations here uh, to reflect uh, the heat map here. So um, I, I was going to move on to the next slide. Is anything, uh, anything uh, Suzanne or Nalafer, on, on the A4 grid? Nope, that pretty much takes care of it, I think. All right, so actors, here's the three actors. Um, do you mind giving us an overview here, Suzanne? Maybe uh, you can des yeah. describe it best. Sure. Um, so someone who is external is going to be someone who has no affiliation at all with your organization. Um, one of the things that people misunderstand about our, our framework here is that Veris is an actor-centric framework, not a data location-centric framework. And so when People say, oh, your, your research says that, you know, the partner actors aren't, our breaches are low, but in this other report, it says they're high. And it's because for it to actually be a partner actor breach in our data set, it has to be someone who works for that partner doing the malicious actions, not, or, or committing an error, which also happens. Not necessarily that the person external to the partner attacked them and got your data because it was at the partner. So. That's sort of the differentiator in, in the way Veris works as far as where the data is, is not as important as who is actually doing the actions. And so 
a partner is, is going to be, there is some kind of business relationship between your company and that partner. And then if the person doing the action worked for them, that would be a partner action. Internal, of course, is someone who works for you, whether it's as a contractor or as a employee, um, doesn't really matter that much. Because they're still granted access to, you know, be able to do their jobs. And so they're an internal actor. Can you expand on internal too, to clarify that it's not necessarily insider threat per se? When we look right, at because you've got not only malicious actions, you've got error actions. And far and away, we have more error actions than we have people actually doing something malicious. And they can be harder to combat because people will make mistakes. So you have to find a way to combat it. One of the things here too, and, and let me click on the next slide. This is just an excerpt from the verscommunity.net is for each of the four A's, they are types at the higher level, directors, actions, assets, and attributes. And this gives you uh, an idea here of what is defined underneath uh, Veris framework. The left-hand side, this is the actor external variety. And on the right-hand side is the actor internal variety. So you can see there's multiple different varieties that are subsets to uh, the external and internal. Uh, and they're further defined here. So it's, it's, it's clear um, or a lot more clear in terms of what each one of these are by virtue of their definition. It helps folks with coding within the VCDV and within their own organization. Any, any other thoughts here, uh, David or, or Suzanne with, with the, uh, the varieties? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, um, that I really love about, uh, this framework is the fact that you can do this internal part, um, because, um, it allows you to almost kind of be able to get and I'll say I get a grip on technical debt, but be able to visualize technical debt, right? So if you're seeing a lot of um, uh, internal errors in a specific area, you can then start to focus on why is that, uh, why is that happening? And um, one of the things that I was, uh, you know, um, managed to, that I was quite proud of actually managing to achieve at my previous company was that we got, um, we weren't just using Verus as a framework in the, security area we actually got various adopted uh, for the whole company so the whole organization would then begin to start to use various to describe their incidents because in that regard then you could suddenly take various from being a security related framework into basically being an organization's framework right so um if you were able to then use various to track because because why should it why should the, the security team have their own language and then the other area have like an ITIL driven language that's is still archaic and built by people you know working in, in that area why can't we have it across the board and then use various uh, to record and track the, the the internal issues as well because there there will be internal errors that um, of course you still have that security incident flag right that, that, mm -hmm. there's that that gets set whatever else but but there will be still internal errors that, that are happening all the time that you could keep track of using various um, and so um, that was actually one of the things that we were quite happy about it took a long time it took actually um i think we've been using the the framework for almost a year when we then approached the rest of the organization and said look hey it, could this be something that could work for you guys um and um we managed to get time with them. We just hired a, a really great data scientist um, and 
uh, she'd come in and she was seeing the you know the, the organization and was just like okay you know I've got to get a grip on all of this stuff um, and I gave her like you know an hour presentation of all the reporting we've been doing and you know our monthly uh, trend analysis and all this other stuff and she was just like whoa like someone here actually understands data science and how to do this stuff like could you be my flag bearer for why we need to do this um, and um, and yeah so 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 we managed to we hadn't got it fully implemented when I left, but but I'm I'm kind of hoping that it's carried on, um, because it it, it yeah. is really powerful when you even just look at the internal part. I know a lot of people see Verus as, you know, external a lot of the time, um, but actually there's a lot of internal stuff that's really worth recording. Um, so that was just to drop that in as a kind of an extra thing. It doesn't necessarily always have to be a security framework. It can be, if you want it to be a success in your organization, you could really go the whole hog and say, well. What what am I actually really using in my in my j- j- operational incident area? Am mm. I am I really using a very worthwhile language over there? Um, could I simply just mm. stop doing whatever I'm doing here, where maybe I'm not having so much success, and just adopt Verus because it, you still have most of the same stuff that you need um, in in Verus, and then just add some of the additional fields that you don't have. So yeah. So yeah. That's a good point. Uh, using Verus uh, in terms of the use case that you just illustrated, but also the other aspect, and you mentioned this earlier in the call, is 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 expanding Verus. There's 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 ways to ex- expand Verus. There's aspects of Verus that that are there already established, but you can also build onto it uh, and use it for your tailored particular instance. Yeah, I mean, we used them. Um, we we added uh, we added quite a few fields to describe different things. We also added. Um, we had a, a going to drop an acronym here, you know, a, a SOA tool, you know, the security orchestration automation mm. response tool. <laughs> um, and uh, that um, we decided that we wanted to add um, a, a field for containment actions because we wanted it to also be a, a kind of, um, uh, we wanted the language to be something we could track an ongoing incident, you know, whilst we were actually in the live incident response case. Um, could we also then, when we add assets into the table, then we would add next to them whether we'd actually done containment so that then at the end when we come to do the the final remediation it's all already registered um and then we go in and see okay these were the ones that we actually you know blocked in whatever tool um, and these are the ones we've got to then eradicate and um, so we added quite a few different fields to kind of make it a bit more um uh, operational as well and then the one that we that really got people's attention when i gave the the SANS talk earlier in the year, which I didn't really expect, was the we added um, we added two additional ones that were really really popular, which was the the malware variant stuff. So we added in the malware families uh, into Verus, where we had like plus dot, and then um, the different uh, different variants, and then we also added uh, some MITRE attack. Um, we only added you know the high level MITRE attack, not not the in depth stuff, because um, I've seen someone some some who have tried to combine them. And it is a task because Verus gets updated and MITRE gets updated mm-hmm. and they get updated at different mm-hmm. uh, points. So it can get a bit messy. Um, but um, yeah, we, we extended with with high level MITRE and um, and malware variants. And then I got loads of people yeah. afterwards um, writing to me on Twitter like, hey, I heard you combined um, uh, Verus and, and malware families. How did you do that? And I was like, you just make a dictionary of the stuff you want to add in and then that's it, you're done. Um, so, um, but the, the MITRE one was the one that got quite a lot of attention and maybe that's something we could just quickly talk about here because 
there was a project and and I don't know who mm-hmm. Suzanne if you know this that there was something going on with a combination of um mm-hmm. uh Varus and Mitre and I can't remember the name of it you had an acronym for it yeah it was uh VCAF and it's still ongoing as a research project with Mitre okay okay cool there it is. no it's here <laughs> yeah yeah perfect look at that <laughs> Cool. Yeah, yeah, the nice really thing about one, right? is we do have um, we do have our plus section where you can just add whatever fields you need, and so it's it's quite useful that way. Uh, one of the things I did want to bring up in this is you know you were mentioning when there's errors and other kinds of internal things that go on that may not be your traditional security incidents. We do also have an impact section and a lot of fields where you can mm-hmm. you can measure if you have that information the kind of impact it's had to your organization, and so it sort of gives more of a grounding for your mm-hmm. finance finance folks of what's going on in that space as well. So it can be quite useful too. Sure. So Susan, um, like what about like who, who puts this data in and like say solar winds, colonial pipeline, all the other com- which have come up, uh, how is this data put into uh, the various database and uh, what if it is put in twice or like I mean, who's responsible for putting it or anybody can report this? And uh, do you see like double reporting of stuff? So we use our um, GitHub repo for the, uh, their issues list where we put in the uh, the issues when we find new, and it's usually me, find new data breaches. So um, I, I try not to get duplicates. Sometimes we get duplicates. When we identify them, we, we put in a record and, and it's it's removed from the database. But um, as far as anyone wanting to code cases, we do have a process for, um, for that. You basically have to contact us and we can walk you through it. We also have a bunch of training materials. So if anyone wants to, uh, to code cases for the various community database project, we would very much welcome them. <laughs> and you would cool. be using the web app that we showed you. Call to action, call to mm-hmm. action. So speaking of which, and this kind of goes hand in hand with the question that Lofer had, um, here's an example here of the actors um, do you mind walking us through this flowchart here to show how to code or decide uh, who the actor is? Sure, and it, it may be a little hard for you to see, or at least it is for me, so I'm, I've got it up over here too. So determining the actor is basically a series of decisions. You know, Does the person who caused the breach work for the victim organization? If they do, that's an internal actor. If they don't, you have to ask, is there a business relationship between the organization that was the victim and the organization that the person worked for? If there's no business relationship, then they are an external actor. If there is, then they are a partner actor. And that's pretty much, you know, pretty much what it is, is who they work for. (laughs) One question, if it's a former employee, do they get coded as external or internal? That's external. Yeah, once they're former, they should not have, still have access. Of course, that should word gets us into trouble all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that it means that their access should have been shut off when they were no longer an employee and uh, it changes the actions and how we classify them. Okay. Speaking of actions, seven mm-hmm. action types. There's some nuances here behind some of them. I know error, for example, is not necessarily going to have a motive. Uh, misuse is going to be tied to a couple of the actor types. Any any high level uh, insight that you can provide for for us uh, in terms of this, uh, Suzanne? So error actions are by definition an internal or partner actor. They are not an external actor making a mistake and somehow causing a breach. Um, 
misuse is going to be an internal or partner actor, and it is going to be malicious actions. So that's the sort of caveats between those two. And then most of the others here, pretty much all of them are going to be external actors, and they can be in concert with internal actors. We do have collusion in some cases. And so that's one of the important distinctions. You can have multiple actions, you can have multiple assets, you can have multiple actors, and you can have multiple attributes that are affected in all of these incidents at the same time. It does not have any kind of exclusionary uh, requirements because the real world does not have those requirements. What are some examples of physical? Um, I can think of a couple, but what are some of the typical ones you see? The most common is theft. So, you know, stolen laptops, stolen thumb drives, stolen papers even. Um, and then the other most common is tampering. And that tends to be your ATM skimmers and other kinds of things where they actually put some kind of physical device um, to interfere or to listen in on what's going on. And the earlier in January, the U.S. Capitol Hill attack, that was physical with a cyber component, correct? Yep, that was. Yeah, that was an interesting case to code up. And we actually did. So we have this thing called various volumes where we code up a uh, case that's in the news uh, with as much information at the time as we have. And we release an article about it and sort of walk people through how you would code the case up. And uh, it's been well received so far. So that's good. We did yeah. that case. We've done... Uh, Colonial Pipeline, and uh, I think there might, was there another one? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, the Pipeline, uh, Solar Winds, which we'll show an example of, and um, Pipeline, and then the U.S. Capitol Hill. Those mm -hmm. the three that I recall. So Yeah. Hey, John. So suppose, like, just now I've seen examples of misconfigured cloud services impacting security. Uh, example is that databases are not password protected, no formal authentication process in place, and then they got discovered and got reported. Where would that show up in this? What, where would it show up in? Uh, and it would be an error category in terms of how it's, because uh, it's misconfiguration. Yeah. Um, there's various different varieties for error, but that particular one would be the mis misconfiguration variety. Okay, thanks. So, no, and we see that paired with uh, the discovery method of security researcher on a regular basis. Exactly. And the security researcher, correct me if I'm wrong, could be an academic or could be somebody that's in that kind of a field in terms of the services they offer where they're identifying the, the misconfiguration or maybe even a vulnerability and reporting it to the victim. Yeah. First they report to the victim and then they report it to the press typically. <laughs> and the bug bunny hunters, do they fall under that category? No, they're not usually finding data. They're finding vulnerabilities. Okay. Sometimes, I mean, if they do a get access, then that can wind up being a breach anyway. But usually those are not as widely reported because they're interested in getting paid by the company that's the victim and not necessarily just getting the notoriety. But what concerns me is the fact that a security researcher is going to report it to the victim company, but uh, there might be others who might have had access and we never know about those. Exactly. And you hear people who complain about the security researchers finding this data, but really you'd rather they find it and make that notification than, you know, some hacker who finds it and just sells the data on the dark web 12 times over. So, yeah, I mean, you know. There's a certain amount of resentment towards them, but by the same token, I'd really rather they found my data and told the company to take it down. 
So this is a coding example here, uh, ransomware confirmed breach. You can see the JSON uh, file name at the top there. Um, and this is just visually showing uh, the, the particular incident through the Varus um, perspective or, or lens with the A4 threat model. And I know that like David, when you were uh, going over examples there for the, the SAN CTI summit, you were showing how you, you could take just an article with a lot of verbiage, several paragraphs and pull out key terms and then code it into, into Varus and, and extract something that's, that you need to read to something that you can potentially have either within the Varus framework or a visual here that Suzanne put together. Um, and that was very, I think that was very effective to show the power behind Varus and how you can um, take something that someone would require a lot of time to read and put it into simple terms within the framework. I do recall that um, from your session. Yeah, and, and I, <clears throat> I used that example actually to also yeah. kind of um, show you the comparisons between the kind of the, the more purpose built um, when I say purpose built, of course, Varus was built for a purpose, but you know, the ones that were, when I say purpose built, I mean the ones that were kind of built just to satisfy a very singular purpose. Um, and, and as I said, I'll do that disclaimer again, no disrespect to, to Circle or any of those guys and the ones that they've created, they, they created theirs and it suits them perfectly for what they need it for. Um, but I did use that, those examples to try and show how limited you would be if you used uh, I don't know, the one that Anissa are working on, you know, Anissa are working on a, on a language at the moment. Um, they have a working group that keeps starting and then pausing and starting and then pausing and starting and then pausing. But um, uh, I used this exact example to kind of show here's a long, long piece of text with a long, long set of, you know, this person is hit by ransomware or whatever it was. I think it was Molly from HR, I think was her name. Um, and uh, I think I talked about QBAR and I, I tried to show kind of uh, when you have this this incident that's happened um, and then you try and map it into this language, how does it look? And you try and map it into this language, how does it look? And uh, and then finally you map it into Varus and then ah, everything is perfect. Um, and I think actually, Suzanne, one thing I would like to also add on was um, one of the realizations that, that we came to really quickly um, was for a very long time, um, we had been like registering cases as uh, a social engineering case or as a, this is before we go into Varus, right? So as a, a, a social engineering case or, or as a DDoS case or something else like that. And what you just mentioned is exactly right that um, a, a case doesn't just have to have uh, a singular attack method, right? We were using attack method to basically define what a case was. And actually it took a long time to be able to convince people not to use that method, because what if you have multiple attack methods in the mm -hmm. same case? How, what, what is then the, 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 the defining factor over the top? And I was like, well, it's, you know, what's actually happened where it's a security incident. That, that's basically your, almost your defining factor. You have a case ID, that's your, your factor. You have an impact or you have a CIA breach, whatever you have, those are the ones that are your factors. And then you can have multiple types of attacks that have happened. And you can also have multiple actors. You can have, you know, as all of these lovely things down here. Um, and, and that was kind of one of the things that, that took a lot, a long time to convince people because suddenly um, when we were doing it, things like uh, the number of social engineering cases that we were registering before we started with various versus after dropped a tiny bit simply because we'd been registering them as you know singular things. We'd, we'd maybe see one incident where we'd have like six uh, users that were social engineered and that would actually, before we moved to various would have been 
six individual incidents whereas mm -hmm. with various it was actually one because it was the same thing that had happened to all of them it was the same incident overall um, so that was also another kind of interesting thing about about Varus that you you had these multiple uh, multiple actors multiple attacks everything is kind of um, a metric inside the case so yeah and it's and I, and I skipped here to coding example two because this is the solar winds case coding that uh, Suzanne can, can can go over with us but it's kind of like the same thing here where this is one incident it's not hundreds or thousands it's one incident. Um, it's 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 a little bit along the same lines of what you're talking about, David, in terms of multiple attack vectors. Except this is more. Um, actually, let me let me uh, hand it over to Suzanne to kind of walk through this one, kind of explain how this one is, is is not multiple incidents. It's it's one complete incident, as far as you know. We can tell with what's been disclosed. Yeah, um, sure. So. If you're not familiar, Solar Winds is uh, is an incident that had a whole lot of victims because they compromised the partner that handled um, IT infrastructure management for a lot of companies. And so uh, you can see in the victim ID, we have a secondary field. And that's how we account for when the primary um, victim has to make all these reports to all of their customers that it was their data that was lost. And so then those customers have to tell the customers who the data was about that their data was lost and you get the secondary effect. And so uh, our definition of sort of a secondary attack is when the attack on the original uh, victim was just a stepping stone to get to some other infrastructure that they had access to and to facilitate that kind of data. And so you can see we have just a ton of victim IDs under secondary with, you know, FireEye and the U.S. courts and all these cities and, and uh, hospitals and universities and everybody else. And, uh, and it starts for the, the attributes. It starts with, you know, we've got confirmed data disclosure, certainly. Um, we know that the data variety they accessed initially was the code base. And uh, the variety we have for integrity violation is software installation. We didn't have any kind of ransomware or anything, so that wasn't an availability violation. We did not ever get the discovery method that I know of. Um, we know that they were uh, external actors. They were state affiliated from what we can tell. And their motive is, again, secondary because they were trying to get to all of the customers via this partner. And the actions that we have here are hacking. We don't know how they got in. We just know it was a hacking and we don't know, you know, the vector. We don't know if it was a web app or what it was. Um, and we try very hard not to speculate and infer. We try to only put in there what we know to be true. Um, we know that there was malware. Um, they, the reports are indicating that they had a backdoor, that there was uh, command and control going on as well and that the actor installed it after they had access, so they directly installed it. We know that the assets at a minimum included their code repository and their mail server, just based on what we found out later. And so the last thing here we like to do is we like to get our event chain. So you have sort of a timeline of how the attack happens and you can look at then the steps that are in the beginning of attacks, what steps are in the middle and what steps are in the end of attacks to sort of give you a you are here if you see just one of them by themselves. And so our first event was hacking uh, by an external actor on a server asset. We don't know the attribute that they was they compromised with that because we don't know for sure what that variety was, but they gained access with it. The next event is that you know they they had the malware installed. 
And then uh, that, that was the integrity violation again against the server. And then the third event was when the actor um, took the code repository information and stole that data. Now, the other thing they do, we know, is that they modified the code repository to push out their malware to the customers. But, and we had a lot of debate on the team about whether this was another event. But in reality, we finally decided that since this is the way that infrastructure is supposed to work, that it pushing out the automatic update was not another event. It was just part of the code compromise instead. And so that's the way the SolarWinds uh, incident shapes up here. So I think it's all about uh, Veris is reflecting the incidents and breaches. It's very focused on that and not so much, um, not too much into the actor realm, but it is, but it's more incident focused. Not too much into specific flavors of malware, but it's incident focus. Is that kind of the best way to, to describe? Yeah, I mean, you you have um, a lot of, uh, of fields. You can put the depth of information you have in there if you want to. Um, usually when someone starts out with Veris, just the sheer volume of things they can record tends to be a bit overwhelming. And so we tell people, you know, just start at this higher level and get comfortable with that. And then as you go on, if you find there's certain areas you want to expand it, then, you know, go ahead and do so. Then whether that's by, you know, using the plus fields or if it's, you know, like VCAP or something like that to map it to another framework, then whatever works for you. The uh, the link, I know this is going to be a, a shameless uh, self-promotion, but um, the link for the SANS talk that yep. I gave earlier in the year, actually, I think really kind of talks about from a, a, a an early perspective in terms of what it can, what the, the journey that you can go on if you want to adopt this type of thing. So I really think that that, that could be valuable as well. Okay, That's... I will definitely share it, David. Um, it's on YouTube. A, I have a question. Well. So, Initially, like based on whatever we know today, this like so you were talking about this solar winds, right? And mm -hmm. then maybe three months down the line, you realize like, oh, what about this? So there's additional information which is available. So do we update it, or how does it work? Like how how is, how do you go in and update that old record that you had, or how would you? So actually. Uh when we're going to update a record that's in the data set, we actually pull it up in the web app. Because you can, you can uh, go in there and you can import and you can pull, it, pull in the JSON file, you just go and select it. And then you can make your changes and you can export it again and out into the repo it goes with the updated one. So yeah, that's, that's how we handle it. Okay. And every time we find new information, usually, especially down the line, it winds up being new impact information as these things go through the courts, especially, you know, you wind up with lawsuits and that sort of thing, or there's regulatory fines or something like that. So whenever we get that information, we will put in an update record to go in and update those records and, and include that. Okay, thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I just wanted to, to, to touch real quick. Um, folks are probably asking about the assets. There are seven asset types. Um, and Suzanne kind of covered it with the example there with solar winds. Uh, people are assets, uh, but we primarily, I, I would say, have to say, say that we see servers, people, and user devices most of the time for the breaches and the incidents. Uh, any other comments here in terms of assets, uh, Suzanne? The other one we do see is uh, media, which would be 
including paper and uh, you know documents and uh, when they lose hard drives or when they it used to be they were always losing tapes or CDs that's all in media yeah. good point and then you mentioned the CIA triad here the confidentiality mm -hmm. integrity and availability um, which folks should be familiar with confidentiality by very definition for breaches is the impact that 100% of the time I've noticed that availability seems to be higher for the incidents such as denial of service attacks than it is for breaches. Um, mm -hmm. Any any other thoughts there in terms of the CIA triad? Just that uh, you know, when when people question why we have people as assets, it's because you have an integrity violation when they are falling for a social attack that is alter behavior, and that accounts for them falling for whatever social attack it was, whether it was a phishing or something in person or whatever it was. And we actually saw the alter behavior step over software installation as top integrity uh, variety for breaches this year uh, in terms of the DVR data set. Yeah, social attacks are on the rise, definitely. One more example here, um, and this uh, perhaps um, is interesting because it's the, the most recent big uh, uh, media event here, the Colonial Pipeline case coding, and set up very similar to the solar winds that we went over a little bit earlier. Any other comments or thoughts in terms of uh, maybe what's different here between Colonial Pipeline case and coding and the um, the solar winds? Anything else? Well, it actually out? is an example of uh, of a record that's been updated since uh, since we originally coded it. And this this diagram, I also updated it because I knew we were going to be talking about it. Um, when it first came out, we weren't sure how they got in. Um, it turns out that that was a hacking use of stolen credentials. Um, and so instead of the unknown action, we've got that in there now. Um, and we do know that, of course, ransomware was deployed against uh, the database and uh, they shut it down because they were concerned that, you know, it, it had gotten into their billing system and they weren't going to be able to tell who they should bill for what as far as the gas that was delivered. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because it, it, it got a lot of attention because it really affected critical infrastructure and especially on the East Coast, it, it had real impact to the public where there were suddenly lines for, you know, people who wanted to get gasoline or, or they had uh, additional hops on, uh, on air, airplane rides so that they could, you know, actually go a shorter distance so they could refuel outside of the area that was affected. And, uh, and so it got a lot of attention. But it really is, is largely just a standard um, uh, ransomware attack. I don't think that... Oh yeah, so they, they, they weren't doing the ransomware name and shame thing, so they weren't threatening to release their data, um, but they did have data disclosure because they got in using stolen credentials. So that was where we got the confidentiality aspect here. We have the, the software installation, which is the malware, and the uh, encryption was triggered, which gives you uh, obscuration as your availability once you can no longer look at your data. And of course, actor disclosure is the discovery method when there is a ransomware attack because it, they find out when that lovely ransom note pops up. Um, nice. And it is attributed to uh, organized crime and dark side is the name of the group. I'm sorry. I also, I also noticed too for the discovery method with the actor disclosure that when you go to our interactive website for the DVIR, the top di discovery method for breaches this year is actually external actor disclosure. Uh, can you kind of talk about that? Is that just purely ransomware or are there other types of actor disclosures that fall in that category? 
There are other kinds of, of actor disclosures, although ransomware is the most common. Um, you also get uh, what I've been sort of calling the hacking name and shame activity now, where it's not so much the triggering ransomware, but they steal a copy of your data and then they threaten you again with mm -hmm. disclosure of the data, sort of as leverage to get you to pay up. And so we've seen that more often since, uh, since the uh, change in tactics with the ransomware as well. And, and it's, it's just one of those things where, um, you know, if you have to wait for the person who's attacking you to tell you that you've been attacked, then you probably have some work to do in your security. Good point. John, I have two questions. So Absolutely. one is that suppose you, like there is a ransomware on my uh, infrastructure and I, it, it becomes unavailable to me. Uh, should I just presume like that they have a copy of everything that was available with me or I mean, because I mean, why should I not assume that, you know, they already have a copy of everything when, you know, they, they have already um, this thing um, basically breached my security and they are in my environment. Well, ransomware incidents have become more and more breaches, in, in particular since 2018, if you look at the DVIR, where the threat actors are indeed, as Suzanne illustrated, exfiltrating the data as a backup option in case the victim does not pay the ransom to decrypt or unlock the files. Uh, they can now go back and say, hey, I've exfiltrated the data. So if there's a ransomware incident, you want to check and see if there was potential exfiltration by that same threat actor to see uh, what you're up against, because it may not just be ransomware, it may also be a data exfiltration event. Okay, second question is that, uh, and this is like what I've heard from people, that um, companies get this email saying within 30 minutes, if you do not pay it, so like this ransom, we will launch a DDoS attack against your, uh, uh, like whatever uh, public facing uh, website or whatever business related, um, uh, like a uh, uh, website or some like uh, internet connected, uh, uh, what should I say? Internet connected websites are available for your business. How will that get coded? Because this is not, they've not like no confidential information was accessed or something, or does it not get? It would be coded as an availability. If they actually launch the attack, it's an availability uh, violation. So it's not gonna be a data breach, but it's a security incident. And we do see a lot of that. Um, and certainly it's, it's a good idea if you have web-facing presences that you rely on to do business that you have some kind of DDoS mitigation in place. Okay, all right, thanks. Yeah, please go ahead, John. Um, I, actually, this was just uh, the way forward. I know we're at the top of the hour. Um, I wanted to click through a couple more s slides here just real quick and then if it's okay, go round robin for any final thoughts that people may have. So we do, uh, we talked about the MITRE ATT&CK framework uh, in terms of VCAF previously to map Varus to the, the at least 12 of the 14 techniques found within the MITRE ATT&CK. Um, but on, on in terms of the cyber defenders, we also map Varus to the SysControls version eight. There are 18 controls now. Um, so we are mapped within the DVIR, and you see an example here, figure 140 for implementation group three. There's three implementation groups within uh, the version eight sys controls. So we do have that mapped as well for the countermeasures of the cyber defender realm, cybersecurity realm. So 
uh, not only are we mapping incidents and breaches within Verus, but we're also mapping Verus to two other industry standards, the syscontrols here that you can see, as well as the VCAF. And I wanted I'm to- I'm gonna ask a question about the, the sys one quickly. Um, yes. uh, does that mean that uh, you're basically saying, uh, if you take uh, the colonial pipeline incident, right? You'd be basically saying that um, uh, in order to do better uh, next time, you should be looking into these categories and the sys controls because this is where they were failures. Is that what you're basically saying? Yes. So basically what we're doing is we're trying to provide people with some kind of roadmap. So if they look at the breakdown of the nine patterns into their respective incidents, they see what they're most likely to be hit with. And then if they look at this, we've got the nine patterns into the controls that are good for combating them. And that gives them a here, here, this is how you get there. We map it to um, all three of the implementation groups. So regardless of where you're starting from, it gives you a place to go. Um, and, and as your security mature, uh, maturity increases, then you can apply, uh, other implementation groups that build on that. This is, uh, this is really awesome. Actually, I did not know about this. Uh, this is actually, um, uh, going to quite largely improve the work that I also do actually knowing about this one. Good. Um, this is really exciting. Is there other stuff like, and I'm going to sound like a consultant now, but uh, things like the, uh, have you looked at the NIST cybersecurity framework and stuff like that? Is that, uh, am I, is that a possible one that could be added on at some point in the future? Because it always it's almost do the mapping and. Yeah, we did, we did map, we've mapped to various frameworks uh, over time. And I believe at one point we did map to that as well. Um, it would be in an older version of the report to sort of take a look at, and it probably needs some kind of a, a, a updating by now, but um, it is, it's, it's one of those things that we try to do to sort of help people sort of figure out, you know, the so what about our research is how do I use this? How do I implement it? And this is this is part of it. The other thing um, that you'll probably find useful is we actually identified the top four controls of all of the patterns that were common in, in the most of them. And so if you don't know where to start, those four controls would probably be a really good place. <laughs> and those are sys four, five, six, and wherever the training one is, uh, 14. Yeah. 14. Yeah. And also to add on there, uh, the SIS version 8 controls are also mapped now on uh, to the NIST cybersecurity framework. On the, You can get that at syssecurity.org. Um, just download it there. It's, it's, a, it's a spreadsheet where it's mapped in that regard. So it, it would go from various to SIS controls to NIST cybersecurity framework. Yeah. So. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, John, do you have your, do you want to, do you have another slide that you want to oh, talk about? Um, I, I don't, but I, I wanted to, to see, um, it's up to you, Nalafar, if we have time to see if we can go round robins for any final com comments that people may have. Yeah, sure. So if you, if anybody has any question, please put them in the question box, Q&A uh, tab. Um, and uh, Susan, we can probably start with you. Um, so, in, in addition to this, uh, we actually have uh, our repo actually has the uh, the graphics um, that we use in our report that we, we put out high res versions of them. So, if you want to uh, use you know graphics from our reports in any of your presentations, you can just go and grab good ones from them, and it's that'll be in the Ferris uh, repository, I believe, or it might be DBIR, but it's in it's in that family. 
once you're in the repositories that are that are surrounding this, surrounding this, you should be able to find it without too much trouble. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming and um, discussing this virus with us and walking us through the different slides, uh, David. Thank you so much. I know it's like almost close to midnight, or probably <laughs> even in the next day. Uh, but thank you for staying with us and agreeing to join us. Um, do you have any parting tips or? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. One, thank you very much, guys, for having me. Um, it's a, it's a real pleasure to kind of uh, be alongside some of the guys that I really uh, look up to as well. Um, but um, I would say that um, uh, Varus should be looked at as a um, as a framework that you can also use yourself, right? It doesn't just have to be something that's in the DBIR. Um, I would say that organizations should just even try doing basic mappings of their own incidents and seeing how does it actually look that you don't have to, as, as Susanna's already said, you don't have to use all of the fields or anything else. You can choose a subselection of them. You can even go online and use the app. You can build your own spreadsheet, however you want to do it. Um, just get started with it. And, and I think that hopefully we're on that kind of next step now where people might start looking at, at this type of this area because for a long time it's been an area where there hasn't really been very much um uh, movement from an organization standpoint right the, the guys at verizon have created this awesome uh dbir where they actually show off how to use the language but for some reason there's a lot of organizations that haven't just taken this step into well how do i apply data science to my incidents and, and here you have a, a framework that's basically ready just to be pulled off the shelf and, and adapted how you, how you want to use it. Um, so I guess that my parting words are get on with it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and you will see the benefits, right? Like I use the, the DBIR in almost every day in what I do as well. Um, and um, yeah, I try to get as much attention on it as well in the area that I'm in um, because I think that more people need to start using it. So I hope, as I gave her in my podcast that I did with um, with Rick Holland recently, that um, I'm going to go back on his podcast in almost a year and and talk about whether we've made any progress in getting organizations to also adopt the language. Uh, so it's going to be one of my focuses for my kind of um, extracurricular activities outside of work and inside of work to get more attention on it. I'm trying with the universities, right? That's actually where I'm trying to get like in if I can get into some of the universities and get them to start thinking about this type of thing, um, then I think we have a have a shot at, at actually having more people start to, 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 because if you can have a student, and I'm sorry, I'm using a lot of words right now, but if you take a student who um, is just going to start his cybersecurity career and he lands in an organization and he's already comes with this language with him um, and, and says, well, why don't we start recording data like this? That, that, that student will just rock it into the organization. And so that's also kind of one of the ways that I'm trying to um, educate uh, students into how they could also start using this. Um, I've actually done it in a different way. I'm using a tool called Obsidian, um, which is a, a, a basic note-taking tool, but I've mapped, I use Verus inside Obsidian now to show you the links between different stuff. Um, it's another way of just visualizing data. Um, and it kind of helps the students to see how and, and that's actually the most powerful thing about that one is that you can then see the links between, you have one incident, two incidents, three incidents, you can then see the links between all the incidents like that without having to build a heat map or anything else. You can just draw, you just have this graph where you can just have physics and move them around. And that's where I'm trying to also get people to see that 
this isn't just about improving how you record one incident or two or three it's about visualizing all of your incidents um so yeah uh, i talked a lot there at the end but um it, it's something that i'm really really excited about as well so um yeah that's my parting words and actually really really i would say really great job guys um that's one of the things that i think i know that a lot of people write about it um but uh, yeah, it's a, I know it's a, a really massive amount of hard work that goes into it. So, and also one last thing, soon, John. Hopefully, I'll receive my hard copy of this year's one because I have my hard <laughs> copy of, of last year's. Good thing we haven't gotten ours yet. They're, they haven't. Yet. <laughs> and you know, you know, I gave the sands talk right, and then um, and I wrote to Gail, and I was like, please, you know, I would really, if you have any any swag you can send me, I would love it. And then he was like, what's your address? And then literally like two days later, faster than the post arrives and inside internally inside Denmark, showed up the hard copy of that book. And yeah, it's 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 the book that I put behind my my desk when I uh, when I give uh, talks. So yeah. Thank oh, you guys. One thing I, I one thing I did fail to mention was we do have the Verus coding style guide, which is basically a manual of how to get started coding cases as well. And so it's got a lot of information on how to do that. So it's also on the slide there. Sure. So John. Yeah, so, so that's interesting that you brought that up, uh, Suzanne, because uh, a wise man once said to me, it was on the DBIR team, is if you really want to understand incidents, you need to code them via Verus because you'll look at them from a different perspective. And I certainly do look at the DBIR differently since I started looking at Varus through the perspective of, for example, the A4 threat model. So encourage folks to get out there and, and learn about Varus and see how you can adapt it, like the examples that Dave uh, David used uh, in terms of uh, adapting it to your environment. And I just wanted to say thanks, Dave, for being a great, or David, I should say, for being a great inspiration. It was impressive to see your SAN CTI Summit presentation. I had just gotten done presenting and was talking about Varus from the standpoint of cyber espionage. And then I tuned into your session and was really excited to see how you walk through your decision-making process in terms of uh, determining Varus was the go-to uh, model for you and your organization and your needs. And of course, Suzanne, um, all, all of the years that we've known each other, I do appreciate all the uh, sagacious advice that you have behind uh, the questions that I ask with Varus because I, tend to to come up with um, some interesting ones from the, uh, the the speaking engagements where people ask you those questions. So thank you for all that you've done. And most of all, thank you, Nalafer, for the opportunity to, to help pay it forward with what you've done with the community over many, many, many sessions like this. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, I know all of you are like super busy, but like to get everybody together and to volunteer your time and to pay back to uh, our community, I really appreciate you doing it. Thank you so much. And until next time, see you.